driver plays games. The hitchhiker plays games. Aren't you kind of young to be hitchhiking out here all by yourself? Aren't you kind of old to be picking me up? Well, we're here, man, together. But when you're out there right, with the great diggers, what can stop it, man? What can stop it? We own the world. He's just killed a girl. Did he make love to her first? I don't know. What's the difference? It makes a lot of difference. I think in order to play the game properly, we have to know what he thinks of women. Their own rules. Their own religion. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. At the end of each episode, along with our honorary sleazeways, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. You should do it. We're up at seven in the morning for y'all. We decide on we all the official ratings and rankings for every <laughs> film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for uh, just about a year, and I think it's 50-plus bonus episodes at this point. So if you haven't made the jump yet, there is a lot of bonus content waiting for you oh, yeah, over at patreon.com slash podcast. And speaking of which, we did have a bunch of people make the jump this week, so we will give them their shout-out this week, um, and that is Alex Wilson, uh, DVS, uh, RC Barnes, SP Jones, 123, Kurt uh, Mathis, and that's the bunch. Nice. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for Very making much. the jump this week. We appreciate the support and hope you guys are enjoying all those bonus episodes. Uh, Lots of hours to go through. That's the one plug. The other plug, uh, as always, Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts and I see the stats, I know some of you guys are. Scroll down to the very bottom of that Apple Podcast and give us a good old rating and review down there. It helps us find new listeners, and we appreciate that as well. That being said, those are your plugs. Welcome back for another week. Uh, As always, I'm your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me is my co-host. Jamie Miller. Welcome back. Uh, two weeks ago, I think, would have been the last time you guys, free listeners, would have heard from us, and we would have had a special guest from uh, the Parents Just Don't Understand podcast, Kurt Schiller on, that was who a brought one. with him some children's sci-fi from the 1980s. A little nostalgia. We talked uh, Tron from 1982 and The Last Starfighter from 1984. A little less sleazy for us. Yeah, but yeah a little bit. Still had its, had its moments. Still you know, fun. We, we I did mean, have like a surprising uh, melted head. Yep. You know, in the last Starfighter, which was absolutely disgusting. In Tron, there was Split also the brain. dude's head. Yeah. That was pretty badass. So there was some weird stuff going on there. If you haven't heard that episode, uh, it's any podcast listener of choice. That was two weeks ago. Um, and last week, for your guys' uh, bonus episode over on Patreon, we continued in the realm of sci fi, but instead of children's sci fi, we meant. We went to more adult, gritty sci-fi from the 1970s, and we talked a big one, uh, Soylent Green from 1973, starring Charleston Heston, and one that uh, had Jamie and I's brains leaking (laughs) out of our ears while we were talking about it, A Boy and His Dog. What a flick. From 1975, which is probably, honestly, one of the grossest movies that oh, we've yeah. ever talked about. And I love just how it sounds exactly like a Disney Channel family flick. Yes. And it, it is It is not that. It quickly no, devolves. that is a movie from the point of view 
of an unrepentant rapist. <laughs> and his talking uh, intellectual dog. Yes. And the tone uh, is not the tone you would expect for a movie no. like that. It's very <laughs> so fun. So bizarre. In very gross ways. So that was a lot of fun to talk about. Again, uh, patreon.com slash podcast. That was last week's bonus episode if you want to hear that one. But this week, bouncing off of the uh, sort of grit texture 1970s yeah. there, uh, we have a very special guest uh, bringing on some of his own grit textured movies, one from the 70s, one from the early 80s, uh, and we're going to have him introduce them. But the guest this week is uh, Australian writer and journalist and editor of Business Insider Australia, James Hennessy. James, how you doing? I'm very good. Thank you so much for, for having me on. No problem at all. I saw that you uh, you wrote some short science fiction uh, short stories. Sometimes cool. was there horror stories in there as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of like uh, I've had a few um, horror weird fiction sort of stuff published in some local in well, some local was, mags. Well, I I That's remember awesome. when you had those linked in your bio, and that was how I knew we had to have you on. I was like, this guy writes short <laughs> stories about the stuff, so we got to have it. And also, Australia has you know its own genre market uh, of itself. We've talked quite a bit about Australian yeah. movies on on here, and uh, so we were excited ones. to go back and do some more. So um, as, totally. it go- as it goes, James, we have the guests bring on the double feature with them. So, what two films have you brought with you this week, and why do they pair together? So the two films that I have brought along are uh, from 1974, the movie Stone, and from 1981, the movie Road Games. And basically the thread connecting them is not only the fact that they are both Australian films, but they're both Australian uh, road movies that came out sort of the period of Australian, sort of the, the peak of Australian exploitation cinema. Um, but... Unlike some other sort of Australian exploitation movies, especially those that people would be familiar with, everything from sort of, um, you know, the, the big ones like Mad Max, these ones were kind of like a little bit more subtle. They're not, they're, they're definitely gritty and they're, and they're uh, interesting, but they're not um, the sort of gore fests that were quite popular and common throughout the Australian um, exploitation scene at the time. They're a little bit more subtle and interesting, but they're both kind of bound together by sort of this road theme. Um, and hopefully as we'll sort of, I imagine, come to talk to, um, there's some really interesting parallels and differences between kind of like American road cinema and like Australian road cinema, especially as it pertains to this kind of um, gritty violence. Sort I of mean, we'll definitely get into that when we, we talk about Stone because Stone kind of branches out of a very specific kind of American sort of um, counterculture biker movie yeah, type scenario, sure. but goes in a little bit, came out kind of at the tail end of that trend, so got to go to some darker places that you don't usually see those movies go to. Yeah, so it was definitely absolutely. an interesting watch there. Um, but awesome. Um, so I think we're going to jump right into it. We are going to talk first. We usually go in terms of popularity, so we are going to talk first here. We're going to talk about road games. Now you're uh... Looking for a little adventure, huh? I could go to Disneyland for a little adventure. What I'm looking for is a little excitement. <gasps> Road games. Across 1,600 miles of desert highway, they're playing games of violence and sudden death. 
my game. Okay, Sherlock. If someone doesn't stop soon, there won't be anyone left alive to play. Road games. All right, so we are talking Road Games, the 1981 Australian horror thriller film directed by one Richard Franklin and starring Stacey Keach and Jamie Lee Curtis. The film uh, broadly follows uh, Stanley Keach's uh, Pat Quid, who is playing a kind of bored truck driver um, who finds himself in a bit of a cat and mouse game with some sort of mysterious serial killer who uh, picks up picks up young female hitchhikers um, as as bait to lure victims on a desolate Australian highway. Yeah. And uh, I would say that the the first thing that jumped out at me is just how uh, like it, it, this this movie really lacks uh, a lot of action, and the the intensity comes more from just watching him trying to figure out everything and uh, it's it's like a it's very i was seeing a lot of comparisons of rear window yes like it's very hitchcock and i've and i've probably made my case for rear window like six million times yeah. on this goddamn show <laughs> yeah we're definitely gonna have to cover that eventually yeah at some point well yeah because my, my thing about rear window that is always i've really loved and it, it uh, it's good that you pointed that out because i think the reason for the comparison is that screenwriter the paranoia right um everett uh deroach um, he specifically modeled the film after Rear Window. He was okay, given the Rear Window screenplay and yeah. was like, I really like that concept. I want to put it onto on, on Australian on road, the road film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to put that and put it in movement because the whole point of Rear Window is that he's broken his leg and he's stuck right, and all he has right. to look out is his window. Um, but the thing that's really perverse about that film is that the guy is a war journalist and the only reason he's looking out his window is because he's fucking bored. That's it. Yeah. It's that the whole point of that film is specifically that, you know, he's just like, fuck, if, you know, I can't go anywhere. If only there was a story happening here. He starts looking out his window. He starts to see a serial killer, possible murder mystery going on. And he's so excited about it. Anytime someone yeah. throws a wrench into his idea of a serial killer, uh, he gets upset. Yeah. That there's not, there might not be a killer in his neighborhood. Yeah. And so you really get it's stuck. Giving him purpose. It, yeah, you get stuck into the voyeuristic POV of someone who genuinely yearns for there to be a psycho killer in his neighborhood, <laughs> so that he can crack the case. Exactly, and and to to be fair to this hero. to this film, Road Games does kind of capture a bit of a similar energy with Stacy Keach's character, who, um, you know, despite the fact that he is you know repulsed by the serial killer, there is something interesting in his job as a truck driver, where he's bored. He's suffering from sleeplessness, and he has this sort of imaginative mind that kind of keeps going and going, and he wants excitement. So at a certain point, yeah. you don't know, you know, there are times where it's like, is he possibly heightening things? Is he imagining things about this killer? Um, yeah, and they even do that. Uh, one of the great parts is, uh, I mean, it's a little further on, but just the way that they direct it is when he's going after um, the, the van and he thinks that or or Jamie Lee has just been put into that van. Yes. And then he sets it up so that they look like they're talking yeah. the whole time. <laughs> and it's just like things like that. It's it, it, and what's great is that the film doesn't necessarily give you those answers right away. So you're you're right along the ride the along with the ride of uh is is he just kind of psychologically breaking down or 
is he looking at an actual killer here? And uh, the film doesn't really give it to you until the until the end, which we'll get to because I have some weird stuff to say. We'll about definitely the end a get bit. to that. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, uh, but but yeah. So no, but the, the, I think the because apart from the fact that um, Everett so Everett DeRoach. Um, was kind of like the go-to guy for writing thrillers in Australia throughout like the 70s and 80s and and on. He he died about about a decade ago now. But until then, he was sort of churning out um, thrillers and he was known for being particularly great. He worked with Richard, Flank, Richard Franklin a few times. Um, but also the other sort of weird Hitchcock link here is that Richard Franklin, um, who is obviously an Australian director, um, basically he... Um, when he was in his sort of his late teens, he was playing in a few like fairly popular Australian rhythm and blues bands. Um, then he decided that he wasn't into music. He wanted to make movies. So he went to the university of Southern California and he was in the class with um, John Carpenter, George Lucas. They were all his contemporaries at the time. Wow. Um, and he, um, but was, he was an absolute Hitchcock obsessive and basically he um, organised a – he wanted a print of Rope. He couldn't get his hands on Rope for a um, uh, a screening at the University of Southern California. Mm-hmm. So he, he ended up um, basically sending a letter to um, Hitchcock's production company and got a call like from Alfred Hitchcock being like, yeah, I've got it if you, if you want it. Um, and he was like, oh, shit, like do you want to come and do a do a talk um, at USC? And Hitchcock was like, yeah, absolutely. And they sort of um, developed like this weird friendship, him and Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, wow. Um, and he ended up visiting a few of this, visiting the set a few times on some of Hitchcock's later films. And then sort of the culmination of this story is – I believe, I'm pretty sure it was after Road Games. Um, Richard Franklin is the guy that directed Psycho 2. Yes. Uh, um, and I don't know, like, a lot of people, obviously Psycho 2 is, tends to be relegated in the minds of some people because it follows such an abs- absolutely sort of like monolithic, iconic film. Right. But it's really good. <laughs> like, it stands on its own as like this quite interesting self-reflective sequel, like this kind of really self-aware um, and interesting sequel that sort of really works on its own merits and sort of has a dialogue with the original film in sort of a fascinating way. So, like, Franklin's connections with Hitchcock are quite, are quite insane and deep um, beyond the mere fact that he's sort of um, like collaborated with a lot. him in this film. Yeah, and, and being like, and, you know, in, in every sense. And there's so many, like... Um, shot references to Rear Window. There's like the part where he like um Stacy Keach picks up the um the book and he's got like the Hitchcock magazine underneath it. Yes. Um yeah. it's just like all these weeks, but it's kinda of like you you really get the sense that he's obsessed with the guy. And then when you read about his actual life, you realize that he was deeply obsessed with Arthur Hitchcock. Yeah, well um, and, and, and one thing that's interesting about him too is because we've I mean we've we've talked about our fair share of Hitchcock riffs on I mean we've talked about Hitchcock on the show, but we've also talked a lot about De Palma, who obviously yeah. was a huge Hitchcock fan yeah, and, loves and, and and took a lot of Hitchcock inspiration and kind of brought it into the realm of sort of like this kind of like sleazier exploitation. Right. But one totally. thing that's interesting about De Palma is that De Palma always really investigated like 
you know, and similar to this, like this also has a perverse quality to its lead character and that POV in the way that, you know, you watch Vertigo and you're watching a straightforward film sort of, but like the psychology of the character who you're aligning with, uh, kind of infects that story. Yeah. Um, but one thing that De Palma never quite picked up from Hitchcock, one thing is that Hitchcock, uh, a lot of his films, they have a lot of hangout scene qualities to them. And De Palma's not yes. really a whole lot of a hangout guy. Oh, um, yeah. He really moves through his movies and he structures them very precisely. Um, and, you know, when he has moments where things go weird, it, it has also like an absurd quality to it that, you know, sometimes it lends itself to the grossness or it goes in a certain direction. But yeah. this one has a laid back quality to it that you will never find in a De Palma film in that way, or at least not in a lot of the De Palmas oh. that I've seen. Um, so like there is something happening here where it, it almost, there are moments in this film that are almost closer to like a Smokey and the Bandit, like blue collar driving hangout film oh, as sure. it is in the realm of like a slasher. Um, it feels like, I mean, the only part that I, I really recall when it comes to like a stylistic kill is I think it's even before the 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 title card. Yeah, it's the opening and, sequence, which yeah. is incredible, yeah. by the way. Oh, it's great! Like it's got this red kind of demonic lighting, like from the red light district kind of thing. And then and then as the killer opens up the door, there's he's like a blinding silhouette, and there's white blinding light. white light. Yeah, it's very stylistic, especially um, as he takes the gloves and he pulls the wire, and the yeah. lights reflect off this and like it's, and it's sterile in the very wire. beginning. So I'm thinking this is kind of setting the tone for what's to come when it comes to like it's very the violence. Moody, very stuff stylistic, like that. yeah. And this is like probably the most violent part of the of the entire movie, except for maybe the ending, uh, give or take. But it's, well, uh, and, but there's also something about the, the slowness of that scene too. Yeah. How oh, long sure. they drag out that you know that this is a killer and it's it's focusing on this girl who's like playing his guitar on the bed yeah. and the the close up of her eyes as they widen while he like pulls the wire around her neck and like yeah. you know there's there there's like a real perversity to the way that like the visual vocabulary of that um, and a very palpable like style that goes into the realm of horror there before it turns into a bit of a truck driving movie. It's actually closer yeah. for most of its runtime. It's it's a lot closer to a film that you and I both liked and we've talked about on the show before. Um, Duel by Steven oh, Spielberg. Hell yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It really has like those masculine anxieties channeled through almost like a kind of road rage. Yeah, for um, sure. That Duel has. And then it also has a bit of like a sweaty Australian outback psycho quality to it of like wake and fright which is another one that we've talked about on this Love show that. there's a real wake and fright aspect to it for sure and i was uh, when i rewatched it bef to remind myself of the movie before um uh for coming on the podcast that was the thing that really stood out like the parts in the the pub and things like that the roadside pubs where it's just yes. like all these these like sweaty um <laughs> middle-aged australian men just like staring Yes, um, yeah. There's, I mean, that's like a, a a sort of stylistic thing, sort of thrust through Australian film for like forty years. Like yes. even now, there's kind of Australian films that play with going into a an outback pub and feeling alienated and like you're not part of the these crew of strange, like you know, almost like um, children of the corn, but they're Australian men. Like 
Yeah, well, I mean, a, that, that one scene where he goes into the pub in this one to, like, call the police and maybe inform them about, you know, that he might have a tip about a po- the possible killer that they're looking for on the radio. Yeah. And everyone is just fucking staring at this Brit who's hanging out in the Australian pub. And the camera does this really slow pan <laughs> across what is a mural of, of like, like colonial violence yeah yeah, yeah. and then yeah. i love the pan because it goes from there to a playboy pinball machine exactly culture like, baby yeah exactly <laughs> it's like this is what we replaced that with like oh my god yeah and it, it, it really does address like you know a a kind of like history of violence and 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 impulse in that in that imagery which and it starts this, to show like his uh even his character kind of deterioration because he gets frustrated and then says something like, D, you know, is in dead young girls. And you're like, not the time, bro. They're like, dude, you're just They're shouting. We're, we're all trying to have a pint here. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, not the time. The radio is looking for a serial killer right now for young <laughs> dead girls. It's just like, you don't want to be yelling that, man. Little sus. <laughs> oh, also, uh, speaking on the... Uh, Wake and Fright <laughs> comparison. I mean, I am, I'm going to be referencing the end here. Uh, so if we want to pull it back, that's fine. But the way that like Wake and Fright goes, you, you see how he's changed by the end of it because of the, the violence he was exposed to and just the, just the bizarre uh, attitudes those townspeople were, had. And with this one, it seems like they wanted to kind of ignore that a little more. Tiny bit. Which I was a little disappointed with, I will say. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't ruin the there, rest of the, the film by any chance. No. Especially it, the way that they apply it. Because I find I find the film is so strong that yes. the, the fact that it doesn't cut to black like three or four minutes earlier than I think it should. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't doesn't bother me a whole lot, but it's definitely something it's that we have to circle back to when we For get sure. to like once we get through the uh the the yeah. actual more of the 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 plot which the plot is actually yeah. quite simple it's literally just him on the road he sees signs of a killer as he's driving around um, and one aspect I really appreciated is how much you're kind of just stuck with him and he's he's yeah. very alone he's got he's yeah. got his his dingo. his dingo in or his supposedly in his drug <laughs> his possible dingo hanging out in his truck with him and a lot of the film is just um, these POV images as he's driving. And what he does to, like, keep himself from boredom, which is he talks to himself, he talks to his dingo, he plays road games, but, like, yeah. road games in, like, the way that you would play them with your family on a road trip, I which spy. is, like, exactly. You know, things like that. Um, and he, he's constantly inventing stories about the people that he's watching. It actually reminded me a Doing little bit. Doing the voices, too. That's really great. Yeah, it reminded me of um, that brief sequence in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that Tarantino did where Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio narrate the TV yeah. show for you. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's for a sure. lot of that where he's just sure. he's, he's driving on the road. He's keeping himself sane, um, you know, because he, he has just kind of like this soul-sucking job where the second he gets a chance to sleep, they're like we got another gig for you. These people need their, their yeah. meat. I do think it's funny too, that the background is a, uh, a, a meat shortage because of a strike. Um, so like there's, there's a meat shortage going on and he's driving around like literal, like a metal can filled with, uh, meat. Meanwhile, there's a guy like out on the, on the roads, uh, hunting for, uh, young women at the same time. And what is it that one cop says? You quoted it in your review. Oh yeah. It's, uh, meat is hung. Men are hanged. Yes. And I thought that, <laughs> that was great. Which yeah, is it's yeah. a great little tent scene for sure too, with the cops. Like the, the, everybody seems, um, 
like they're hiding something in this movie, which is yeah. uh, just interesting. Like they, they don't really flesh out a lot of the characters, but they well, all because feel it, like is there's it, something is it, is behind Is he paranoid them. or is it, right. you know, is there a cover up or, or, exactly. or do Australians just, you know, want to turn away from that history of violent impulses? Like, right. do they just want to ignore it or is it not even there? Is it a figment of this guy's imagination who's looking at these people and projecting a kind of that violence onto them? And then it, it's funny how much he implicates himself to everyone he comes across with because he's so obsessed with this thing. Like yeah. that lady who he picks it's up. Like you're in the, the only truck. one that keeps bringing this up, man. Well, yeah, and he keeps, <laughs> he's playing games with this lady who he who he picks up, and he's you know he's uh, he's driving her to his next stop, and he's getting so invested in describing this killer that the guy that the lady is just like like suspicious of him <laughs> yeah she's like Are, you seem to be very well versed with this killer who you said is driving a rig even though no one has said he's driving a rig and you're driving a rig yeah <laughs> to the point where it seems like she's almost willing to jump off a cliff <laughs> to, <laughs> to get away from just him. to avoid the guy um Another thing I really liked was how they how they introduce like every person that's in a different vehicle and then throughout the film <laughs> he just happens to stumble upon them over and over again. It just feels like they're all these characters are just connected by this this one road and uh it's almost as if they just like yeah live on it they're all they're all very connected based yeah, on the widescreen imagery them. really lends itself to this like long desolate road yeah. where there's not very many people and the few people who meet each other like he only runs he runs into the same people over and yeah, over like and the over motorcycle again the biker, guy, yeah. the, uh, the wife and the husband um, <coughs> and i think there's another one but i can't recall right now but well when um, i'm one of the things when you read an interview with everett deroche when he was thinking about his inspirations for this movie his the thing that he said like sparked the idea was he was like, when you go on a road trip, and I know this is like, um, would be similar in, you know, North America, but when you go on a road trip and um, you've, te- and you, you, especially in Australia where there tends to be, there's like basically, if you're going from Sydney to Melbourne or Sydney to Brisbane or whatever, there's one road. Like, there's no way you can diverge. It's just right. one road. There's a single road that loops <laughs> the entire country and yeah, there's one that like cuts Canada through the middle. With the 401, yeah. uh, but continue, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you're going on a road trip, um, you're you're inevitably going to run into the same people constantly. Like you're always going to be meeting them at the same rest stops because there's a they're, they're few far between. Um, the same little towns. You're always going to run into them. You're always going to pass them on the road. And he was like, how it was like, how cool would it be to do a thing where you know the, the killer is sort of moving among this kind of like. Def- convoy that's kind of traveling down the road yeah. who aren't really connected to kind of are by the road um right yeah and yeah so it's like and but the fact that like his relationship <laughs> with all these people is so weird and alienated like even though they are sort of um bound by their shared destination like every sort of interaction he has with these people apart from when he's sort of making up stories for them is like weird and hostile yeah, because it's like uh, like the he starts to almost assume he starts to assume too many things, and then he also I think overthinks his own skills as a detective and uh, his own yeah. intellect because he starts making assumptions like the the moment where he sees the van parked, and so he goes into the bathroom. <clears throat> Excuse me, he goes into the bathroom, and um, without any like he doesn't question the guy. He doesn't. <laughs> Yeah. Try to to a hundred percent know that this is the man that he's looking for. He just starts 
saying the most outlandish shit. He's like, you're, you hurt my dingo, you know, it's, it's, it's over, it's time to whatever. And there's just this dude shitting that, that is <laughs> yeah. just like, God, guy, I'm just a motorcycle guy. I just yeah. want to it, It's just the motorcyclist who's, who's got a cold while he's uh, <laughs> riding yeah. around and keeps sneezing in his helmet. <laughs> it's great because it goes on for like a good couple minutes. Yeah, and, and, and it's like it's suspenseful too. Yeah, yeah, it is. And because you also know they, they keep cross-cutting between him doing that and then uh, Jamie Lee Curtis uh, searching the van. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's really smart too because... It, it appears that the van is completely abandoned. So cutting back and forth, you get this really suspenseful thing where it's like, like, they like got she, him. She, she only has a short amount of time to investigate his right. van before he gets out. And then it's revealed that he's in a sleeping bag and, in that, the van. and the guy's just in the bathroom, just talking to some stranger, like an, like a total idiot. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and he freaks him out. And then that only, uh, makes the the townsfolk even more suspicious of him because now he's just gone off the rails. With yeah, this like dude ev- trying ev- to take every a shit. random stranger that he's meeting is being like, "Is this guy the psycho killer?" Yeah, because he's this is a weird fucking dude. <laughs> he's the only one that keeps bringing this energy yeah. to us, you know. <laughs> yeah, like he's he's kind of inviting everyone else into like his paranoid psychosis yeah, that he's exactly. in. Um, and. And it's funny, too, because at that point, he really doesn't know anything about this van driver other than he saw him digging a hole yeah. in the desert. He's seen he's heard like one or two radio stories and he saw the guy digging a hole. And yeah. he's like, this about, is the guy about a Jack the Ripper who is dismembering young people and you may be leaving their body parts around. And he's like being like, I wonder if he's I wonder if he's chopping up the bodies and maybe <laughs> yeah. he's burying them. And the, everyone looking at him is like, are you OK, man? Why do you want to think about this so much? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and there's one it's part not your two. Job either because when they introduce jamie lee curtis who he picks up at one point he's she's a a hitchhiker who he kind of drives by like two or three times before he finally stops and picks her up because i guess it's illegal to pick up hitchhikers is it is that still a thing um i believe it technically is depending on what state you're in um i I don't don't even know but i'm pretty sure back then there was a lot more like paranoia (laughs) around it as well so i think it was prosecuted more um heavily okay and i i imagine it, you know associating it, it it might even just be more for truck drivers and not personal vehicles yeah, it's probably totally. something to do with the stop because i know they have to schedule all their stops and all that stuff so yeah. i'm assuming it's well that. he picks up jamie lee curtis who is kind of like a the daughter of a uh rich australian figurehead someone whose last name is famous so she doesn't tell anyone what it is um and she she's also looking for some excitement she's looking to get out of her her current life and it's funny she's the one person that he talks to who's actually interested in his ramblings about the killer yeah. she's like oh this is sort of interesting I'm, I'm okay with talking about this but one really important distinction is that she's interested in in it from a uh, a woman's perspective as someone who is prey as someone right. who is being hunted and she's like I wonder like th- is it like a sexual impulse is is there some sort of pleasure yeah, he gets out of it that seems to not have even crossed his mind no at all. he has a really revealing line where he says who cares about why I want to know how Right. It's the process like he's he's already. The, and then when she makes him think about the why he's actually upset about that. He's actually yeah. like, don't, don't get I, me in the head. He's, he's, he's like, I don't want to think about yeah. his misogyny. I, I don't want to think about where about... those body parts are possibly. <laughs> exactly. So like there's something weird in that he's that so interested yeah. in in this killer's process that he separates it from, you know, any sort of weird, disgusting 
you know, sort of impulses that he might have, because it seems like there is a weird thing where he might have these strange impulses that he's so fascinated and curious in that way. Right. That even though he's repulsed, he's still so intrigued and he wants to keep looking. And the film really gets so you into that voyeuristic that up, quality. He's kind of like, well, you know, stop. That's too close to home. I, I, I don't want to think about that. I, yeah, exactly. I don't. I don't. Why are you making <laughs> me think about the, the, the women who he's killing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's just think about the case. I just itself. want to think about the killer. I yeah. want to think about him in that way. And I think there's, there's a there's, as you were talking about that kind of thing about like a hangout movie, yeah. and so much of it comes through and that sort of stuff. Yeah, like them sitting there and like riffing about motive and like <laughs> method and kind of like that kind of tension. They're talking about that for like three or four minutes of screen time, right? Yeah, it's like a ri- uh, and the whole time the camera is just sort of like holding on the cab of the of the truck as they sort of just talk it out. And that's one of the things that makes it so um, complete. Like you said, the thing about how someone like De Palma would just kind of move through the like the kills, the plot, and drive it along, whereas this movie is very happy to sort of languidly sit there and just talk it out. Yeah, well, that's yeah. that's how you know that it really wants you to get you into the headspace of this of this main character, and especially when it introduces Jamie Lee Curtis, who kind of challenges him on a lot of his um, point of views on 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 that and it should go be credit to stanley keach too who's just phenomenal oh yeah as this, he's so like, charming it's it, well, yeah and, and he's he's a lot of fun to hang out with but he also is like just amazing at playing this kind of guy who feels kind of like impotent like he doesn't have yeah. a lot of power and control and someone who uh has a lot of um anxiety but also is is clearly just like dealing with with uh, the tedium of his job at the same time and is looking for ways to channel this into things that excite him in the same way that Jamie Lee Curtis wants to be excited, but just in, in ways that um, she still manages to actually like, kind of like challenge him on. And it's, it's when she is kind of taken out of the picture that he goes like full psycho mode. Like when she, when she, I think he's also got that kind of hero complex at that point too, where now he's like, well now I have an excuse to like physically go and find and save the girl, you know, hurt or get the guy well, arrested, kill him maybe. <laughs> yeah, and, and but there there is an interesting development that also happens during that, which I think triggers his psychosis even more and is so revealing because it's right, you're right, at first that is what it is. Yeah. Where he's like, I this girl, I had a connection with her. She seems sort of interested in me as like this middle-aged uh, uh, T.S. Eliot quoting yeah. poet drug Yeah, there's driver. definitely <laughs> like a hint that he's into it too because we have that scene where he thinks that somehow he thinks that they're screwing no that's exactly what that's right. exactly where i was headed to because yeah. yeah when when he pulls over on the side of the road and he thinks that he's found the van um and he thinks that she's now having sex with the killer yeah <laughs> which is like yeah because at that and she was like that's all women want man yeah, and he goes on like a bit of a tirade like it, it to himself like in the he, car he just got his like envy all twisted and yeah. and started to assume things that wouldn't even relate to her character whatsoever you know it's just like and also he's he's already seen this this guy his uh, his assumptions are definitely coming from a place of like psychological torment rather than uh an actually good yeah judge well, of well, at, at that point he's just upset with her 
Yeah. And, and he's, and even though she's been kidnapped. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and like his, his brain doesn't think like that because he's, he's going into these crazy places and the, and the vocabulary, visual vocabulary of the film really like amps up with that with him where it does a lot of these like crazy zooms and push-ins on like the rear view mirrors of the cars while also there's like this glowing red sunset all over his face where he's talking with his own voiceover at one point yeah. where like yeah. you're getting his thoughts and then every once in a while, his thoughts are interrupted by him speaking out loud to he his own thoughts, himself. which yeah. I imagine writing that in the screenplay and being like, this guy's fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the movie puts you in the headspace of this guy. And, and as that's happening, too, they have like the uh, the pink and purple sky that's getting yes. darker and darker as it goes. And they even start to do crossfades of the uh, the lines of the... Um, the, 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 the road, the road with, like his, the, with his with his yeah. it reminded me of that scene you showed me from uh too old to die young the nicholas winding reference yeah, show that he sure. just did recently yeah he did that exa- exact Lost same highway thing. kind of vibes yes yeah um and also that shot which i was totally blown away by i think this is actually a pretty gorgeous film overall but that shot where he's looking at the van from the back and two eyes appear instead of the oh, windows. Yeah. Like the van is like yeah. fucking looking at him. Yeah, like I it's become like this giant cosmic character in his brain. And also the rear view lights uh, uh, pinpoint in the middle of his eyes. So it looks like he has glowing red eyes yeah. while he's looking at those giant eyes on the van. It's fucking crazy. Like some of the stylistic elements when this gets into it, it is almost borders on like expressionistic because it's weird because yeah, it sure. has like this dusty, sweaty, like outback, you know, road hangout vibe yeah, to it. It's very it. real. It's like that sequence and then the beginning sequence with the murder, but like he only kind of sprinkles it in there. It's it, a lot of the time you're just in this really grimy, hot, sweaty environment and then and then he'll just crank up kind of this uh psychological stuff, but to, I'm, I don't know how to say it. It's like uh what they're doing on uh, on the it's getting you into his headspace stylistically, yeah. exactly. There's that definite like expression. It's like there's that especially the scene where it's kind of like he teases that there's kind of like a, a romance element between the two of them when they when they've kind of gone off the road and they're like camping out or whatever. Yes, and, yeah, the harmonica and, then, and all that. So there's like all that, and it kind of builds up, and it's like are they about to kiss, and they don't. That's kind of it. It's like there's no more of that, and obviously like that feeds into his weird. Um, his weird like a uh, mindset or whatever. Yeah, like, we're in that kind of scene. Yeah, where he says, uh, "Women are all the same. They do it like animals." Yeah, is what he says. <laughs> which is which is yeah. you, which is something you could imagine probably the killer fucking saying. Oh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but like all the way like that sort of roadside scene is shot is all quite expressionist. Like the weird sprawling planes yes. like behind them and like their little camp and the, the sky and all that sort of oh, stuff. Oh, and, 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 and when so, she walks over the hill and the lightning strikes uh, in the yeah. pure blackness and reveals the killer standing there with his guitar. Yeah, he does <laughs> yeah. feel somewhat like larger than life, like he's a spirit in the desert or something at that point. Yeah. No, the, the, the funny thing is... um. Because obviously, as we said, Stacey Keach plays a great role. But it's funny that um, uh, Franklin's original casting choices, he really wanted Sean Connery to play him. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, I, was, I don't know that I could imagine it, honestly. Yeah, I would like to see it. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, it'd be, it'd be bizarre. The only reason they didn't is because they couldn't afford his um, his fee. But it's like, <laughs> um, yeah, that would have to think like – I can see why he would have wanted that kind of weird energy. And I think it does. Um, and there's a bit of the thing where it's like 
a lot of the dialogue talks about how much older he is than her. And it's like, you don't look that much older than her. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're not, like, incredibly old. Yeah, it's right. definitely... You're, you're, it's, not, you're not, like, mid-50s. Sean Connery would have been worse, for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we're, we're sort of pivoting into the climax a little bit here because shortly after Pretty that... intense. Shortly climax, after that yeah. hallucination scene, which kind of caps off with um, a similar close-up shot of his eyes that match that shot in the opening scene of her eyes as she's being strangled. Yeah. Um, and he keeps hearing something in the back of his fucking truck, and the dingo keeps barking at the back of the truck, and he goes in there, and he's like, is there a fucking... Is he in my fucking truck? Yeah. Um, and he goes in there, and there's this amazing shot of him standing in the center of all of the pigs swinging back and forth in the back of his thing, and he's like... I feel like there's more corpses in here than there was before. Yeah. And my, and it feels like they're dethawing and they kind of smell a little bit. And this is after all the, after that is when the median lines start like being superimposed um, on his face. Right. And um, he finally catches up to the van and there's this really bizarre sequence where he like kind of corners it in an alley and tries like running over it. Meanwhile, uh, the, there's also like the public and also the cops are looking for him because of all these suspicious things that he's been doing where they're like, okay, so you (laughs) throughout the entire town. (laughs) Yeah. So you are scaring everyone. And also you picked up a hitchhiker and people saw you pick up a hitchhiker and so and they even go back because uh, the the older lady that he picks up first yeah. ends up pointing him out and saying like <laughs> he was saying this stuff to me and all this and like just making it worse for himself. It's it's yeah. it's kind of I mean at that point it's almost kind of funny like in the in the darkest possible way. Yeah. Just because I mean you've seen this guy kind of put himself into this scenario. Yes. So for it to get to this point it it does give me a hint of like dark comedy in a way. Right. Well because everyone who didn't engage with him further didn't get to see kind of like him talk about being, you know, like uh, a a war vet and him talking right. about being uh, you know, how he is sort of like a well-read guy, despite the fact that he didn't go to college and like, yeah. like talks Jamie Lee Curtis only. And yeah. And how he plays his harmonica uh, over like these beautiful images of like, you know, the heat waves yeah, he, on the road. He plays like uh, two orchestral music. Yes. I can't remember the song. I think it's the one that goes like dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just to hear that on a harmonica was so a bit funny. of a trip. <laughs> yeah. So like he has these really unique personable qualities that nobody else saw because he, all he could talk about was this fucking killer the entire time yeah. it's like what a fucking weirdo but when he <laughs> catches up to this killer what an amazing scene where he gets out of the car and he smashes the killer's head against this grate he starts smashing it and then he yeah. grabs the dude's wire and he starts strangling him and he's just straight up strangling the killer in the same sequence of events that opened the film right and this is what's crazy about this is that it's not like there's no hint of self-defense there's no, nothing there. He, He's just doing it out of it almost seems instinct, which is very concerning. <laughs> yes. And, and and this is, I think, the most important part of the film because they have set up that he ha- has He's found a way to unleash his interest in this killer by becoming that killer. But, yeah. And it has this amazing shot where he's strangling the dude and the whole town comes up and is like what the fuck is happening here because this <laughs> truck doing, has been man? ramming into this van for like 10 minutes yeah, in this that alley. alleyway sequence just yeah. like grinding metal and yeah, like oh, oh it was that was that real. was awesome and then the uh the the cop being 
uh, tangled up in the wires underneath. Yes. I really thought we were going to get a, a gory shot. I'm, I'm glad he was okay. <laughs> yeah, but when, when the community comes up, there's an amazing wide shot from behind him as you can see him lifting up the killer's neck by strangling him and all of this crowd of people just walking closer where they the only thing that they've seen is this dude strangling a dude who is the truck driver. And, yeah, so and they every, already have their suspicions of this guy. <laughs> yeah, and, and they catch him in a moment of, like, pure, primal, violent impulse to kill this guy. And I wish it cut to black right there. Yeah. A yeah. little bit. I really like this movie. Or something even where, like, he stops, kind of looks at them heavy, like, heavy exactly, breathing like a and moment then a cut there. or something yeah, like that. Where, yeah, where it leaves it with that ambiguity... Um, because shortly after, obviously, everyone, the, the ladies there, the bikers there, everyone's like, that's the weird guy who picked me up. That's the weird guy who harassed me yeah, in the bathroom. And I feel and like the, the movie was also kind of setting up a thing where it was like, I mean, I'm glad they didn't do like, you know, it was a, a, all a psychological thing and he was the killer was or something dream. like that. Yeah, like yeah. something corny like that. But it would have been just nice to have that ambiguity because the movie does kind of set that up a little bit. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? Like having that scene with the desert where she goes over the hill and then he's just watching like with his guitar and there's a lightning strike and stuff. It kind of hints towards <laughs> something a little larger than life, yeah, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I wouldn't have minded well, and, and, and the last shot of the film still tries to end on a tiny oh, yeah. bit of ambiguity. For sure. And it, 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 it ends the same way, to be honest, that rear window ends, which it turns out that the, that the whole time he was right, there was actually a killer in, in rear window, but you're still left with that feeling of like, but that guy still really wanted it. He did all that. Like, yeah. like I, like I, I yeah. can't yeah. leave that mindset of this character who wanted it. So it, it still leaves you with that, but it does very simply be like, yes, there was a killer. Oh, actually Jamie Lee Curtis is proof right there in the sleeping bag in yeah. the van. They pull her out and they're like, no, that's not the killer. That's the cool guy. Yeah. That's the killer. <laughs> And uh, even kind of, he even kind of like slaps him and like, you know, it's just like, you left me with him and stuff like that. It kind of has a, a comedic. And then it goes back it. into the hangout vibe of those two. Yeah. And then it's like, maybe they'll go on other journeys. They're both walking along the highway. Um, yeah. And I felt like they didn't want to wrap it up completely nicely. So they did have the whole like head fall into the bucket and have that. Yeah little story that he hears yeah, where that, it's like well, they it, didn't it, find it the actually, bodies or something. And it's really creepy because it replicates that opening shot, that over-the-shoulder push-in shot on the girl who's murdered at the beginning mm -hmm. because there's this slow shot, which is from the point of view of the killer who's slowly walking up behind her neck to pull the wire. Right. And instead, this one's slowly pushing up behind um, a woman who's cleaning out his truck after they've pulled all the pigs out. Yeah. Um, and then uh, she feels this little wire kind of hanging above and she pulls on it. Cause he, when he went in and checked out his truck, he did actually never look up. She right. pulls on the wire yeah. and a decapitated head falls, uh, into her bucket of cleaning water, which is also just like a gross detail as well. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I like that, that there's that, that ambiguity that leads back into that shot where he's kind of standing among all the hung, the, the pig carcasses. Right. Because and it's like, how get, did like, that body get in there? Because you're thinking about it, yeah. and you're like, I don't know that the killer had a chance to put a body in there. Yeah, it's hard to say. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, definitely. Yeah, totally. Yeah, then, so yeah, you've you've got like that weird feeling. It's like in that shot, like was one of the bodies in the background like a human, like a long pig or whatever. Um, yeah, and it's it, it, yeah. It, so I I like that aspect of it, but I agree that like the ending of it feels kind of like, 
a weird twist in tone for a while, doesn't quite like cash the checks of some of the things that they had set up, both kind of like emotionally and kind of like on the fringes of things that were happening. Yeah, um, well, well, it's because at, at a certain point you do really feel like the story is really that this guy basically drives himself into his own psychosis. So it, yeah. it, it is. It, it would be yeah. really interesting to end on that moment where his psychosis is that just is. revealed to everyone. Yeah, yeah. And everyone's yeah. just like, what the fuck? And like we know, but no one else knows. And there, there's an interesting. Uh, and it just seems odd because it feels like the movie was kind well, because, of because because it nails the, the scene, time, the visual you know? vocabulary of that crowd walking, right, like towards him as the he's caught there. in his moment of yeah. like pure yeah. killer energy. <laughs> yeah, it is there, man. <laughs> so it's right there, and then you can just tell that they kind of just they they don't re- they don't even fully walk it back. They just walk it back just a tiny bit. Maybe it's just because he was such a likable guy. Everyone really liked him. <laughs> You know, they were like, we we don't want him to to end on this horrible, horrible note. Yeah, I wish they did, but maybe that's what they were doing. I don't know. But also, we're fucking weirdos on this show. So yeah, we're always like nihilism. Go, go for the darker <laughs> part. Yeah. Um, fucking sick motherfuckers. But yeah, and entering uh, the reductive rating round, which for for you, James, where we remove all the words, all the nuance, and reduce the movie to a number between uh, one and five. But it's also turned into like. Closing statements or uh, also any any scenes or any uh, particular things that we didn't get a chance to talk about. This is where we're going to do it here. Uh, and for me, uh, you know, despite the fact that I think there's a slight misstep in like the last it's honestly the last like two minutes of the film. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is still going to get the high four for me because I think there is something just absolutely um like intoxicating about its unique blend of, again, the sort of like perverse voyeurism of rear window and uh and i mean like that's just it is it you can copy the plot of rear window but it's it's clear that they actually understood what rear window was actually about that they go for more of that voyeuristic angle and then again also the masculine anxieties of of duel and how that translates into car and how the car is supposed to be you know and the road is the symbol of freedom but also you might be a guy who's technically you're just a guy trapped in a tin can especially if you're yeah. dri- like it's your job to drive around and then combining that with the sweaty psychosis of a movie like Wake and Fright which is just genuinely one of my favorite movies that we've talked about on this show and seeing all of that wrapped into a hangout film and also a slasher film that like moves tonally between like you know this the these these personable fun moments and then realizing that this personable fun guy you're hanging out with actually might have this like sick twisted imagination to him that you know sort of infects the film and brings it into the realm of 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 slasher horror and that kind of way um, and it's so interesting watching how excited Stanley Keach gets talking about this possible killer looking out <laughs> at, at each corner trying to avoid the reality that like, you know, maybe every single one of us is just a sack of meat riding around in a metal can. Um, uh, and the movie itself is very lean. It's very suspenseful. It's very patient for a thriller. Oh yeah. Like to trust that the, you won't get bored. I mean, there's not a lot of action in this. It's really, and and, and even most of the violence is very implied, right? Like there's not, you know, there's, there's not a lot of, uh, uh, that's really like shown to you. It's all really, uh, which, which helps you get into the headspace of his mind. It, It helps, it helps trigger your own imagination as an audience member, which exactly. is, you know, kind of the, the headspace that, that, that he's in, um, as well. Um, so I, yeah, I gotta say like, I, I just found the, the whole movie like front to back, very engaging, um, 
to watch and this lead and to tie it into this really like kind of perverse lead character that they really nail um you know uh very very well done so good job to uh richard franklin i'll definitely be checking out more of his stuff because this is honestly this was my first richard franklin film but i've also heard he did a film called patrick that seems patrick is is it good as well patrick is great yeah Um, and it's also by everett deroach who wrote it as well it is yeah yeah yeah. Uh, and it it really leads into kind of like the it's all all almost entirely set in like one room basically um and it kind of it really leads into that yeah, I might, um, and I and might just have to check out more Everett DeRoach because it's funny we I we already talked about him too. He also wrote Long Weekend and Razorback, which oh, is a double sweet. feature that we those did on the, the show. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah, those were great too. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so um, high high four out of five for me. Nice. Yeah, I think I'm I'm right there with you. Uh, after they established kind of that that gritty violence in the in the first uh, scene, especially just how. Um, surreal it was with the with the white lighting and the silhouette mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. and the kind of red light district uh, lighting that they were doing um and i thought that that's where it was kind of gonna be the whole time and i love that that's what they set it up for because then the psychological deterioration of this character you can kind of just be there with him the entire time because they're not giving you anything no. they, they set it up they give you the violence kind of the just to set the tone. Yeah, they, and they, they, they give they you like, that uncomfortable mood and yeah. then are like, here's a guy. And then, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he's one of the most charming, happy, intellectual kind of dudes. And, and you want him to, you know, you want the best for him, for sure. Uh, but just as as he unravels this, this mystery, uh, you start to kind of see a little too much of him. And uh, it's, it's great. It's very effective. I loved uh, the actor. Uh, I wouldn't have minded... Jamie Lee Curtis to be in a little bit more of it. I really liked her character. It, it does feel like there's well. something a little bit lost when she disappears for that like yeah, 20 minutes, even though, under, even it, though it is understandable because it, be, it does yeah. have to get him into that isolated, alienated yeah. space. For sure, for sure. And she doesn't um, show up until quite quite a bit into the film too. That too. So yeah, it feels like, like she, she pops up and then she disappears soon after. Yeah, so yeah, she, I get that. She's really only in like the the middle 30 minutes, yeah. I guess, something like that. But and, and, and she's really good. So like, so that's why you want to see more of her. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, yeah, I thought it, I thought it was great, and uh, I definitely want to check out uh, Psycho Two now. So yep. yeah, no, you gotta do it. Awesome. And Patrick, I guess. Yeah, that one seems awesome. Uh, but for you, James. For me, um, yeah. Look, I'd probably put it in the same place. It's got like I've I've watched this one so many times over the past like decade, I suppose. <laughs> it's something. It's and I think it's just like a, a movie that I've I find very easy to just put on for a lot of the reasons that we've kind of outlined yeah, because yeah. it does have that sort of slow ponderous thing. It's so dialogue heavy. It's so driven by that sort of thing. The visuals are very cool. Um, I just find it, and, and as you say, like quite a um, compelling watch. So whenever I put it on, I find myself um, quite uh, drawn into it for the whole time, even if I'm just putting it on in the background. So yeah, so it's one that I will, I repeatedly come back to. Hell awesome. yeah. Yeah, it was great. All right. Well, uh, that will wrap it up for, road games we are going to be right back and we are going to be talking about stone in a suspense thriller you cannot predict what's the score man you got a pro after you call it gone man look man i didn't want any trouble well, why don't you do something honest like sell used cars to old ladies i'll kill you you think we're a pack of imbeciles don't you i'll kill you 
Stone is different. Take the trip. All right, we are back and we are talking Stone, the 1974 Australian biker film written, directed, and produced by Sandy Harbutt. Or Harbutt. Couldn't tell you. I think Harbutt. <laughs> it is the uh, first and last film directed by, uh, uh, and I think written also by uh, Sandy Harbutt, who is also. Uh, one of the two lead actors in the film playing the head of the biker game uh, called The Undertaker. Oh, nice. Um, and this is a obviously known as a classic now um, Australian counterculture film. It kind of came, as we mentioned at the top of the show, at the tail end of what was kind of like the late 60s counterculture American films, uh, a lot of the time involving bikers. Um, you know, there were uh, there were a lot of them. There were things like Hell's Angels. There was, I think the really big one would have been uh, Easy Rider. Okay. I feel like would have I been... I think I saw that the... Uh... That they, the Hell's Angels were actually thanked in the credits for this movie. Well, they, they literally used them as like 400 extras or something. Oh, for like so the they're in there. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah, a lot of it. Um, Very but, cool. but there's something interesting happening here because um, uh, Easy Rider from 1969, um, obviously directed by Dennis Hopper and um, also has uh, Peter Fonda and Jack Nicholson in it. Um, it's a bit of like a cross-country trip where like, you know, sort of like these hippie bikers are like, selling drugs and they find themselves kind of happening upon kind of like these um, uh, communities and certain people's sufferings and prejudices and, and all kinds of things. And they basically go across America. It's the American movie. You watch yeah. it now and it's got yeah, like... Yeah, I was going to say, you you three that movie, I do, right? yeah, because yeah. I'm not super crazy about it. Um, I haven't seen it yet. Well, mostly because like what was counterculture is now just reads to me like big boomer energy. Like you watch that film now and like it's like classic rock soundtrack but okay. they're being like we're punk and so like there's a okay. weird vibe that you kind of get from it nowadays even yeah. though it works as a time capsule in that way but i don't get a whole lot um out of that film in particular and it's interesting because stone kind of comes a little late in the trend where it really wasn't all that cool anymore like by okay. the mid 70s like it, it, it wasn't uh, how people were thinking about that in that in that way anymore. And right. so Stone kind of throws in some different elements for you, including um, some the undercover more, cop thing. And yeah. And some like sort of like uh, 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 political assassination and and religion in the t in the form of the bikers are uh, satanic worshippers. Yeah. And then you have yeah. like these the over looming politicians that are trying to get the, the, the two gangs to kill each other. That whole thing. <laughs> Which is which yeah. was interesting, uh, but but maybe uh, James, you could start us off by talking about maybe like uh, because like I'm we're coming at this entirely as uh, North American viewers who are putting this kind sure. of in the history of of American counterculture. Can you maybe speak a little bit to how this fits into like Australian counterculture and kind of like how this movie is more viewed today? Yeah, so I, I kind of an, an interesting thing is that Australia probably more than anywhere else other than the United States kind of has that biker culture. Like we, we have had that for a very long time. We still have that. But a kind of a, an interesting thing is that it hasn't really left as much of an impact on the culture as it has in the US. Like the US has like these big sort of cultural touchstones around bikers all the way to now. Like you can go back to Easy Rider and you can come all the way to like, you know, 
Sons of Anarchy now, right? You know, right. there's like that sort of world um, is quite entrenched in the American culture, but in Australia, it's not really. Even though we have a lot of motorbike gangs, they're very much um, part of our kind of organized crime. Stone is kind of like the big biker movie for Australia, and there's not a whole lot else. Um, and you're right, we're talking about talking about like that 60s counterculture stuff. Australia had exactly the same thing. It took a very similar form. Um, but biker, this kind of biker was not really as much part of it as it was in the US. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like it sits in this weird kind of space. Um, and I think it comes from the fact that like Sandy Harbert said that he, he, the story he tells that he was living with basically a biker cult um, at some point in the late 60s or whatever. And the experiences that he had um, living among them sort of informed the screenplay and the, the vibe and the whole thing around Stone. Um, it's pretty cool. It definitely does speak to a kind of like the all the stuff that kind of like the political background of it was definitely massive around that time. Like there was the like the green politics movement in Australia was like um, becoming a thing. Like there was a lot of anti-development movements, anti-pollution, that kind of stuff that was being led by kind of like um, a, a sort of a, a left-wing uh, counterculture. Um, and that kind of the the, um, the guy that gets assassinated in the first scene, where he's kind of a guy getting up and going against development, against um, pollution, right. that kind he's, of stuff. He's giving like a big business versus the people and yeah. environmental policy kind of speech, and then yeah. he is publicly assassinated in the opening yeah. scene while the bikers are just hanging out, like tripping in the audience, <laughs> which yeah. is like yeah. kind of a funny detail because they're just like, and the one guy because of the assassination and he catches a glimpse of it he starts having like a really bad trip yeah <laughs> he's like oh no they're going to get me he's running around and all it's the, the great thing is like because i i live in sydney all of this movie is shot like around sydney and it's not like a even within australian cinema it's not like a, a city that gets shot like film like it's obviously sydney's one of the most like photographed cities in the world everyone knows what the opera house and the harbour bridge and stuff looks like mm-hmm. um, but it's not like a cinematically unique city you don't see a lot of um you know the inner city streets and that sort of stuff on the screen but stone has a lot of it and the um that opening scene is kind of done out the front of the um like the art gallery of new south wales um where i was actually i walked past that just um just yesterday just like the the scene where that happens where the assassination happens so you're walking by and you're you're imagining just like this guy getting gunned down on a stage and like with like (laughs) it's actually pretty like the opening is really violent like the it is yeah it's also um squib work i wanted to mention the uh the score because like even within these this these the first three kind of little sequences in this first scene (laughs) is uh like it starts off with this kind of uh, really creepy um, girl kind of singing, but she's got a lot of reverb and delay on, and it says, like, no swimming because of all the pollution and stuff, so it's kind of setting that tone. And then it goes from this really low synth, and as the synth and horn is kind of disappearing, the camera pans down to the protest. Mm. So at first it's starting... To be like, it's got some style to it. The way the the filmmaking. Oh, the opening and like then, five to ten minutes is like yeah, really, and then really the the stuff that they do for the bad trip is like they show him 
kind of like uh, in this fisheye lens yes. kind of thing. And it's kind of like d- discolored and yeah. Yeah. And then there's a pulsating synth that just kind of keeps going like do 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 And it's it's a little yeah. like it's abrasive, but it, it's effective because, you know, you get into that mindset of just this guy having like a horrible trip in the park or something like that. Yes. So uh and this is all just within the first five, ten minutes. Well, and of the movie. and it coincides with the urgency of us just watching a dude get gunned down. Yes. So it's like yeah. the bad trip merged with the assassination <laughs> yeah. happening at the same time. It's a bad trip. It it really this, throws throws yeah. you off, and it moves from that into a series of like slasher sequences where like mm. the killer, because he thinks that the gang right, right. saw him and he doesn't know which gang member it was, he just decides I'm gonna kill the whole fucking gang yeah, just to get the guy sure. who saw me kill, uh, you know, assassinate this politician. And I think I don't this might be the earliest I've ever seen of a wire decapitation of yeah. a biker using <laughs> a wire across the highway. Now, this is actually they got the rolling head and everything. I, I've seen this in like quite a few movies now. Uh, most notably recently, it was done in what I think is the underrated uh, The Counselor oh, by Ridley yeah. Scott, where they, yeah. they set yeah. up this whole scene where the guy sets up the wire and he gets it exactly to the right height. And you're like, what the fuck is this guy doing? The guy bikes through to gets decapitated, but it also happens um, in a, a, a Chinese neo noir that comes out later this year called Wild Goose Lake, which mm. I just oh, watched recently. Nice. Yeah, and it's it's a very awesome film. And either way, I've probably seen like three or four decapitations. It was so <laughs> it was it was interesting to see it. You know, someone do it in 1974 yeah, in kind of like the too. smaller, low budget film. And that's only the one way that he um, uh, kills uh, a guy. And I love that shot briefly where you see the hair stuck on the wire and then the head kind of rolls into frame. Yeah. Yeah. But he also uh, explodes another biker when he turns on the ignition to his bike and then he runs another one off a cliff. Yeah. (laughs) The cliff shot is like one of my favorite shots in the movie and also just like generally speaking. (laughs) Yeah, Um, it's fantastic. Because like also uh, a weird bit of trivia, the guy that – the stuntman who did that shot is plays the killer in Road Games. Um, wow. So there's a, there's another little connection for you. But, the, but that shot, um, the guy who did that was kind of like a famous, I can't remember his name. It, it, it eludes me a moment. But he was like a famous Australian stuntman at the time. He did stunts for all of the Australian exploitation movies of the period. Um right. Well, I mean, I mean, three of these bikers who appear in the film uh, all were in Mad Max. Yeah, yeah, they're all in Mad Max. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the that shot where he drives off the cliff or gets driven off the cliff and plummets in the water below. The stuntman really just did that. He just drove a motorbike off the, the cliff, and fell into the water. <laughs> That's um, badass. <laughs> but the and they talk about there's a do, there's a documentary. I'm not sure you may have heard of it before, but it's called Not Quite Hollywood. Um, and oh it's, yes, uh, that's, the, that's the uh, they interview um, a bunch of filmmakers in that. I think I think Tarantino talks about this film in that yeah. one. Yeah, he, and, I, I, yeah, I read that he really admires it. Yeah, he really likes this movie, and Tarantino talks about this shot specifically in it. Um, and then it, it also interviews a bunch of people who are on the set, and they said the guy just like came up out of the water, and his like whole body was a bruise, and he was <laughs> completely and he was completely knocked out. It's oh just, like, my god. It's, it's just yeah, like, I mean, it's a hell of a fall, I will say. It is. It's it's a convincing uh, on screen, and now we know why because the guy just fucking yeah, he just went for it. Himself. Yeah. Badass man, that's that's awesome. And I love too. Like it, it goes from this to that. Like I, I started uh, 
really enjoying the flick after they they start doing the funeral ride yes. and the guy has a yep. sidecar that's a coffin. I mean, that's yeah. just, that's badass. That's metal as hell. <laughs> well, and they had this radio segment where they're kind of like, you know, there's a rise in bike gang violence because they think that the rival gangs are maybe killing off all these people and not like this assassin. Yeah. Um, so this when, is kind so, of also the beginning to like the, uh, a lot of shots of them riding the bike. Oh yeah. Which I'll say at first is very effective, but then I think at as a certain the film point, goes, it's a little it, it monotonous. gets a little much. I'm like, I get it. It's cool. Like, it, you know, rock and roll bikes. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. But uh, it goes, it goes for a long time. Yeah, and <laughs> it's, it's not quite at the level of like, uh, what's the Grand Prix? You know, where they have right. like it, as they do it for three hours. It's not as excitingly filmed as you know. Yeah, although they, I will say they still do have some cool shots. You know, there's got some cool some POV shots, shots like, like on the bike, the windshield, and then of the POV, and and even on the side <laughs> right. bottom bike and all that. But. Uh, but yeah, it gets a little monotonous. But I, I really like the sequence and how it captures like the community and like this sort of like a biker solidarity sure. that they have. I mean, there's one uh, specific line that they say on the radio show where they say that this third gravedigger who was found dead, uh, gravedigger being the uh, the name of the gang, um, uh, he was buried with full bike gang honors, like as if it's like a military <laughs> burial or yeah. something like that. Yeah, and then they they have a full procession of all of these actual bikers that they hired as, as extras for the film to do like a full bike funeral where they're, like uh, where they're, they're, funeral. they're driving this, <laughs> uh, the, this coffin along, which is funny because they actually steal that shot actually in Mad Max with the guy who was in this film oh, playing. Yeah. Um, cause the guy, I forget uh, which actor, the guy who plays toad, is okay. the guy yeah. who plays uh, Toe Cutter in Mad Max. And in, in Mad Max, uh, there's that shot of him with the coffin in the back seat of the truck oh, right, uh, where right. they're driving the guy along. Um, so it's funny that uh, they also have them driving a coffin uh, in this one. But the funniest detail about that is when they get to the actual funeral, they pull the coffin out. And I was thinking, oh, nice, they're going to bury their friend. It's, a, it's, a, it's an emotional scene. But then they take the corpse out of the coffin yeah. and throw him down a hole where they are <laughs> yeah. offering him to Satan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then they just start, like, yelling at the top of their lungs, Satan. And it, yeah, that, I was, that oh, is, this I is taking that, a turn. Because I, <laughs> I was not expecting that. Like, uh, I, yeah, well, I was like, why did they even buy a coffin? <laughs> <laughs> just to have that awesome sidecar. Yeah, no, that that um, that, yeah, the part where Doctor Death or whatever they call him, he does it. That's where he just <laughs> yells, "Satan!" It's great. Uh, oh, it's it was one of the best things I've seen, and I also that was the moment where I realized that they were probably going to do some weirder things with this movie. I thought it was going to be <laughs> just kind of your typical like badass, and, and I mean, in a way, it kind of gets to that where it's it, it does get a little bit more typical a little but, bit but uh, there, there is like a, a strange amount of detail to this yes. that you can tell is authentic probably to a guy who hung out with a biker cult. right because absolutely. there's stuff that happened in this that you've just never seen another biker movie that because that, that's what separated it for me i think i prefer this a little bit to some of the american counterculture biker oh, films nice. just because you can tell a little bit like it's hollywood actors being like we're Look cool, cool. Yeah. We're, we're 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 hip with the this kids does have a real authenticity like to this it. does have someone hung out with these guys and also they throw in the undercover cop element which gives you a little bit of like that point break where it's yeah. like someone who learns to hang out with them and become one of them like it, it does have like it admits an outsider coming in yeah and but but uh, you know still portrays them with a certain amount of detail that could only come from someone who actually did hang out with some of these people because like it's so weird 
weird that you would you think it it shouldn't be true but you're sitting there and you're going this has to be what it's actually like a little bit <laughs> yeah i mean the names of some of these guys buzzard captain midnight uh uh ferret uh hooks pinball septic just septic. Just, just 69 <laughs> one guy's just named 69 stink <laughs> finger right, yeah. Uh, Undertaker Zonk <laughs> like there's so many oh, hilarious details to this but it's funny because the cops approach them at the funeral and you know have questions for them about obviously their 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 dying members of of their gang and how it maybe relates to this political assassination and they just say fuck you pigs you're persecuting a minority religion yeah. <laughs> is the exact wording that they use which is a really funny yeah. twist really good um uh, to claim uh, Satan worshippers as a minority, which is probably true. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't argue. Uh, <laughs> just, I'm not sure quite how persecuted they are, but yeah. we'll see. Uh, in 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 this universe, definitely. Um, but then the rest of the film is this undercover cop who tries to prove himself that he is cool. He is, you know, someone who's going to hang out with them, yeah. and, and he is going to find out because he does believe them that something weird is happening here, and if he embeds himself with them while they're being picked off, maybe he can help them catch this killer. And they're like, well, we don't trust you, man. And then it takes him like, you know, having a backbone and standing up to them and showing that he's, you know, ready to get rough and tumble with them. Yeah. And, you know, have, have that bit of a what sort of punk attitude of his, uh, character. I, I, I didn't find him all that. Um, Not the most compelling. No, I will no. Say. I mean, I don't think he's bad by any means. I just, I didn't find, like I found uh, the undertaker, you know, far better for instance. You know, just, just totally. I would have rather got into his headspace more <laughs> than I would have got into the cops. Headspace. Yeah. And, and that's the one thing where this takes a bit of a, a bit of a sour detour for me. I think that there's a lot of it that still works. It's the middle for me. It's like the beginning and the end really works for me. It's the middle just kind of gets a little bored. For and, me. and I understand why it's there, because, again, it's it's doing something similar that Road Games is doing. But Road Games does have just a lot more skill with how it transitions from yeah. its thriller elements yeah. to its hangout elements, because this is trying to just get into the hangout vibe right. of him becoming friends, of him understanding why this lifestyle would appeal to someone, you know, having the good vibes with them, you know, like the scene where they all like, they give him his honorary denim uh, vest and his jeans right. and everyone's, and they, yeah. you know, they, they offer him up the girls. I love too that he's got like this white helmet with these white frilly <laughs> gloves and stuff. And it's like, you know, you know, whatever, but the, uh, just comparing him when he's side by side with the rest of the gang, it just looks so silly. Yeah, you know? well, yes. and, and everyone's just getting laid, smoking weed, reading, yeah. reading uh, Phantom comics. Uh, yeah. like it's, just, it's just, you know, small details like that where he's hanging out. And he's like, yeah, I'm a cop. Uh, and I've come to find out who's been killing your mates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, and, that's and, a great, it's a great detail there because, um, and then this... The Phantom has like an uh, unbelievable amount of cachet among like boomer Australian men. <laughs> That's it's so like, funny. It, it's like it it was one of the markets, like especially Queensland, the state, um, where the Phantom was like most popular anywhere in the world. And it hasn't translated at all, obviously, down to the next generation. But it's kind of like like my dad's generation and even like his dad 
like the phantom was like massive that's so interesting so that so that's like that's like the same way that i would watch easy rider and be like uh oh these needle drops sound like what like you know like uh a 50 year old man would listen to now right right um where it's all like these classic rock songs basically but but in the film it's like it's the transgressive punks who are listening to this and stuff right, like that. Right. So like that, so that's saying. interesting that that translates. I, mean, I do love my classic rock, but I know exactly what you're saying. Right. Well, it's just, it's just how that's changed. Like I don't yes, listen to classic exactly. rock in that same way. Like I like it. It's just, I don't right. listen to it as in it's like. It's not the angsty punk music of today. Right. So it's, means. so it's funny sure. that, you know, like it, that's funny that that translates into sure. Australian culture with these phantom comics where it's like, these guys are reading like these countercultural comic books instead of like the great literature. Right. <laughs> Right, right, and now it's just like like in the stones. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, for sure. So that, that's that's actually a pretty funny detail because I just thought that sequence was kind of funny where he's reading the comic yeah. and the, the the girl is trying to like make out with him and he keeps like slapping her, being like, "Get away from me! I'm trying to read my fucking phantom." <laughs> yeah. comic, I'm trying to read the phantom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was the one like the um. I just like something I noticed really on the rewatch, but like when when they're having like those hangout scenes, they're all getting. <laughs> They're all smoking, but like the the camera effects with like the slowly escalating like wobbly stoned vision. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah. to me. Stoner vision. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which is which is a is a pretty funny detail, and and a lot of it is really just him hanging out. Uh, starting to kind of like learn um, the codes and the law of these this more like lawless community, like how, uh, I mean, he tries to hook up with the one girl, but like the one girl like belongs to another guy in a way. And like there has to be like this weird ritual where like she uh, like officially leaves him and stuff like that before they can kind of like get together. And he's trying to like navigate those codes. He's like, I thought you guys were hippies and that it was like free love or whatever, but actually they have their own sort of laws that apply. Yeah. And they're like, you have to understand that we believe in our laws with the severity that you believe in yours as a cop. And like, that's why he gets like the shit beat out of him for it and stuff like <laughs> yeah. that. And I will say that scene when uh, that happens, I, like I, I laughed out loud because of the the way that it's set up because he's just like, you know what? They're just at the end of the day, these guys are just free. You know, they're just doing they 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 don't they don't say anything to anybody and they just do what they need to do. You know, I actually have a respect for them. And then as soon as he says that, they fucking come in and just beat the shit out of him in front of his girlfriend. And I'm just I, like the, the setup is unbelievably hilarious. Yeah. Like it, it really very is. Funny. It, it's very funny. And I don't know if they were trying to do it, like it, it seems slightly like a dark sense of humor. I don't know. The way that his dialogue is seems it has to, you feel like it has to be. I'm pretty purpose. sure it is. Yeah. Because that leads into his whole thing where he's like no cops when they're um when he's lying there like beaten and bloodied. Oh right, right. Yeah. Oh my god. Because that that part was just unbelievable. Because yeah, cause that's like was, that's like the very last scene. I of thought the movie. it was going to be the conclusion of the movie where it was just like you know, like he just accepts it and and it's totally fine what happened. And he he did his no job, but but he learned to respect these people right. who like otherwise he would have seen as like <laughs> these dirty outlaw hippies. Just to confirm, like this is who we are, dude. Like we're not, you know, we're not this <laughs> nice like freedom-loving well, people. Well, yeah, because because all, the, all the other scenes where he starts to, like, you know, um, sort of, you know, get involved with them. Like, there's this pretty cool, like, drag sequence that happens in the middle of the film yeah. where the camera is, like, strapped to the bikes as, like, this electric guitar, like, wails as he's, like, <laughs> turning these tight 
corners. Um, and as he's like sort of like learning to to live with them at one point, he like turns that corner too sharply and kind of like falls off his bike. And everyone's just like, dude, but we respect that you tried to make that turn, bro. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's very Keanu Reeves getting into the surfer <laughs> lifestyle in Point Break, yeah. which to be fair, I fucking love Point Break. So oh, like, yeah, it was cool too. to see someone kind of do this stuff a little bit earlier and learning to live yeah. like them and going skinny dipping with them and uh, learning to respect a guy who can wear a top hat in a cape while riding a bike and think he's super fucking cool. He has a great <laughs> shot where he's not wearing the top hat and he pops out the top hat <laughs> and then puts it on and then cocks a shotgun or something like that. It was, that's probably the best fucking uh, shot in the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, but 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 they really, and, and like, you know, they welcome him in and, you know, they start to teach him their codes and everything, but it is the point where he defends the killer that they kind of say, fuck you, dude. And it, yeah. and it was sort of interesting because I did think there was a little bit of a weird moment in that because you would think that, you know, I mean, I guess it happens in Point Break, too, where, like, you know, he still has to come back and, like, arrest the guy and stop him and stuff. But it's because of an escalating sense of violence on the part of Patrick Swayze's gang at that point. Um, the bikers actually seem like pretty chill and they actually don't do a lot of crimes. Like they just hang out. Yeah. So you're, the majority of the time. Yeah. So, so there was this thing where like when they find the killer and you know, it seems like mob rule is going to take over and they're going to take on this killer, but you actually kind of do understand from like a, a dramatic, uh, the way that the story is narrativized and like dramatically framed because yeah. the bikers really haven't done anything bad. And yeah. All you see is uh, them being killed by like a slasher villain, basically. So, so when they finally yeah. catch the killer, you think that you know um, uh, the I forget his name Stone. Uh, this is the fucking lead character Stone, Ken Shorter's <laughs> character Stone. You think you know that he might join in and help them kill the killer or at least want that revenge really badly right. but he doesn't really seem to at all. He, no. he basically just seems to flip a switch and he stops being friends with them and he goes like, I'm no, a cop now I'm a cop again yeah. you're not going to kill this dude and that um, seemed, that to me I guess seemed a little maybe easy a little bit well it it, it does because it's just uh, the one thing it's missing from point break when he makes that choice is it's missing the melodrama it's missing like yeah. the cosmic emotion so, like, between, i love you brother that yeah whole it's thing. missing yeah. that like <laughs> central relationship yeah. and how they feel about it and like that you know so like they they develop it to have that sense of honor and to have that sense of connection but they don't they just have him immediately betray that for yeah. like no Which real seems reason odd to because it. the whole film seems focused on the fact that he's becoming part of them. Well, and, and, and yeah. it even ends on that exposition of him being like, you know what? I do really like them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it, and, and, and not realizing that he just really betrayed them by yeah. protecting the person who was picking them off one by one, like a slasher villain. Yeah. Um, which results in his ass kicking. Right. Which is why it's so funny that he doesn't <laughs> see that coming, that he's sitting there in that scene. He's yeah, going, just you know reminiscing. What? He's on like, the you know what? Times. They got a real sense of honor that I like. They just up and do the sort of things that, you know, others wish they could. I like them and I'd be glad to see them anytime. <laughs> They suddenly break into his Bang. fucking house. That's hilarious. Beat him nearly to death. Yeah. And it's bad too. Like he's like the way that they show him after that beating is just completely covered in, in blood. Like, so so it was interesting because when I saw so the scene violent. where he defended the killer, I was actually kind of disappointed because I honestly thought that they would end with him 
sort of like road games, like yeah. joining the gang and killing the guy with him or something and getting this revenge for this very personal um, violence um, to people that he considers free and like great people and people that he now empathizes with. Um, but instead he chooses the job for like very little dramatic reason. And so the fact that they just like nearly beat him to death is so fucking well, funny, even though yeah. that's not the tone of the scene. The no. tone of the scene is that, you know, they're getting him back and that it kind of sucks. But honestly, I was like, you deserve it, man. <laughs> that's what I, was like. I literally went, yeah. yep. Like it, it like, was it, like it's those... clearly supposed to be tragic, but I was like, dude, you totally had that coming. Yeah, that scene was when I like, I mean, I already liked the movie, mm-hmm. but I was I, like, that solidified it because I was like, okay, so they know that he can't just do this and that they'd be totally fine with it. And then he's just going to accept it and reminisce about the good times with them and stuff. So when they came in and beat the shit out of him, I'm like, okay, they had something to say here. Well, know? and then especially because they <laughs> end on his bloodied face and it's brutal. Ooh, it's it is brutal. covered in blood and, and his like wife just like crying like... in his arms, like, or in, she, he's in her arms. Yeah. So like yeah, just, what a what a like absolutely brutal ending even though I don't know that the movie quite uh like I think it the movie is meant to have like a tragic empathy for the main character that I don't quite have don't for him. Don't quite have. Yeah, like honestly I didn't <laughs> yeah. want him to get the shit beat out of him but when that scene happened, once again, that that seemed to make sense to me. Like, well, it's yeah, like, yeah, it was that's like, where it's dude, lead, you betrayed bro. the gang members who yeah. welcomed you in. What'd you think was gonna happen? Yeah, like, and yeah. and. You know, they have every right to be super upset that, like, you know, this guy was picking them off. Like, like imagine. Yeah, they even make the point where they're like. Imagine, like, a Friday the 13th movie ended with, like, the main character being like, guys, we can't kill Jason. (laughs) We can't do it. Okay? It's just not right. It's not lawful to kill a man. Okay? (laughs) And then he slaughters everybody. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, it's such a weird position to take, and it doesn't fit the drama at all of, like, what the narrative was of him hanging out with them and yeah. empathizing with them. Because they even mention, they're like, if you take him, all he's going to, he's going to be in jail for 10 years, and then they're going to, he's going to be released. Like, just let us, <laughs> let us exact our yeah, vengeance. Yeah, and up until that point, they haven't, like, hurt anyone. They've been the victims right. the entire time. So yeah. it's him telling the victims, hey, no. You can't get revenge on this guy, even though I'm supposed to feel that revenge with you now. That's why I joined you in all of this. So either way, that scene really threw me off. And then the last scene uh, in its own way, I I don't know how on purpose it is. It totally kind of makes up for it. Yeah, Yeah. it totally works. (laughs) Yeah, whether it's on purpose or not. I I think that it does lead to... I feel like some of it is. Yeah. I don't, but I think what there is they a dramatic probably, irony to it. What they probably sure. didn't have going in on purpose was the, the how way you that feel I about the main character. Because I viewed it as almost like a dark comedic like <laughs> scene, even though I don't think it's t- tonally doing that. Uh, that's how I read it. So, yeah, it, it worked for me by the end of uh, by the end of that scene for sure. <laughs> it, it, but uh, as you kind of flagged before, and just like calling back to what you said before, was the fact that so much of this is in Mad Max, not just like the <laughs> actors, but you can see like the um, pedigree of this film in Mad Max. Yeah. Like the type, like the, the Kawasaki motorbikes, basically um, the fact that like a character in this is literally named Mad Max. Yeah. And the, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and also like uh, <laughs> um, uh, Hugh Case Byrne who played 
Toe Cutter in Mad Max, but also played um, Immortan Joe in Mad Max Fury Road. Yes. Uh, George which Miller is, which brought, brought the boy back. Nice. Brought him back for it. But is it, and the, um, Sandy Harbert, who, as uh, you probably have seen, never made another movie again. Um, and it was quite yeah. funny. He um, he gave an interview to The Guardian, I think, last year after not really talking about it for a very long time. And it was hilarious how bitter he is about it. It was just like, <laughs> well, it, he's like, Mad, he's like Mad Max, that's just my movie. That They just made Stone again. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's like they, they didn't really, but well, I, I, I would, see I would, why I, you I, would be like. Yeah, you I could definitely see, see like, the bare bones for what would become Mad Max in this yeah. film. But there there is a sense of like editing rhythm and directing from yeah. George Miller that like, definitely dude, surpasses what he's going for There's something called here. influence. It's allowed, you know. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's funny too, because uh, Hugh, uh, Hugh Key's uh, burn is also in um, fucking Mad Dog Morgan, which is another Australian oh, film. Oh, hell yeah. That we, we really enjoyed on, uh, on this show. Yeah, so, no, totally. So it's awesome seeing how small kind of like the Australian sort of like uh, exploitation industry kind of was at the time and how many of these yeah, people made cool. it onto other productions. You do, yeah, you see the same cast of faces in all of them basically and it was like the same crew the same everything kind of worked on all of these movies yeah and they were all all kind of and this kind of gets covered in the um not quite hollywood the doco but literally all of it just came from the (laughs) fact that the government decided in like the 60s late 60s early 70s like oh shit look at uh look at um america it's like cultural industry is massive we don't have a cultural industry we need a film industry. How is this going to happen? How is this going to work? They set up a film commission and they basically just gave money to anyone that came with a pitch for a movie. Well, and, um, and it is interesting too that I, I read that Stone was a huge box office success. It was, oh, it was. huge. Yeah. And they never let him, and it had uh, Australian government funding, and they never let him make another movie. So it's kind of like... It, so strange. Yeah, it, it yeah. is strange that they didn't let him do more films because, you know, even though, you know, I, you know he, maybe he would have had time to, like, craft some and of his directing a little bit more. And other people that are in this, like, went on to do big, other things. Other big films, yeah. Like, uh, I mean, I, well, this, was, this isn't this movie, but there was another connection. I th- I'm pretty sure the composer from Road Games is actually the composer from Mad Max. Ah uh, yes, it is, yeah. So it's it's yeah, it's yeah. Brian 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 May, not from Queen, but <laughs> local Australian Brian May. Right. Yeah. No, right. he is. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. Um, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So entering the reductive rating round, I think on Stone, this one is gonna get. It, it's really close for me, but I think I'm gonna go with the high three on this one. Yeah, I'm kind of with you there too. Ju- just because. Um, I feel like it, it could get upgraded. It's pretty close to the low four for me. I would just say there is a middle chunk of this that gets a little bit monotonous I and agree. just, um, you know, at a certain point, it's like how many scenes can you do where like they he hangs out with the game, yeah. he, he he reveals yeah. to them a new they go code. to their next hangout. They go place. to they go skinny yeah. dipping. Uh, you know, like it's just there's there's a little bit of like uh, it maybe wasn't super necessary and i heard that the original cut of this film was like over two hours oh, and wow. i was like it felt a, the middle chapter feels a little bit long at like uh an hour 40 or whatever i agree they could have cut like 
10, 20 minutes. I just think. a little, just a little bit where it's just like at a certain point you do understand he's hanging out with them. He's starting to like them. He's having a good time. Um, and especially because of how little that ends up mattering to his decision making. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Near the end. That's really where the confusion lies for me. Cause it's just it's like, like maybe like if it got to the end and that change. stuff had more of an effect on him. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could see it, but, it, but instead he totally betrays them and then goes in exposition. I really love those guys. <laughs> yeah. I had a great time with them, hanging out, good vibes all I around. I love that scene <laughs> so much. Uh, it really does make the movie for me. Yeah, so 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 for me, it definitely. But but I would say like it opens really strong. Like the first like twenty twenty five minutes is really really strong in how it moves from this political assassination to this hangout to this this funeral scene to this these slasher scenes of them getting picked off. Um, and then to the sort of like point break relationship of an undercover cop getting involved in a, in a gang and starting to empathize with them and having a good time and get into their codes of honor and things like this. And then obviously it has a really strong ending. So like I did have a good time with this film overall. So that's why it's going to get, uh, the high three. Um, but I definitely do feel like Sandy Harbutt isn't quite totally there as you know um a a director um he he does get a couple of the slasher elements right but not quite as right i think as george miller eventually does in um his mad max films and same with the action too um it's a low budget film so you can't do a whole lot but there is some cool stunt work that they do like that guy as we mentioned going off the cliff and the decapitation by the wire i (laughs) almost wish there was a little bit more of that stuff i agree uh, and some of that mood because road games at least is peppered throughout with like this sort of deteriorating um sort of slasher mood that it has but it this film really doesn't return to that almost until they beat the shit out of him at the very end where it gets like (laughs) really grimly violent in that moment Moment. yeah so yeah i'm gonna say it gets the high high three for me nice uh yeah i'm, I'm on in the same boat uh i could see this getting the upgrade i think once again the score is fantastic there are a lot of uh i think original pieces in this that were pretty compelling and kind of weird at times they did a lot of like weird choir stuff at times with a lot of reverbs <laughs> and delays and stuff so that was very cool um, i also like that they did a a kind of a nice send off for one of their one of their guys where they're just like uh he he's dying and he says um he's like it doesn't feel bad feels quite good really and stuff like that. Oh, it's like, kind of wholesome their satanic yeah, ritual that yeah, they do. yeah it's like wholesome <laughs> satanism you know yeah. uh and uh so there's things like that that's real charming and then once again that that ending scene where he's just like i'd be glad to see them again and then they just come in and beat the shit out of him <laughs> That's that's it's a good joke. The darkest funny that I've that I've seen in a little bit. So uh, yeah, it's it's a damn good joke if it's a joke. <laughs> I don't really know what he was going for exactly, but it works for me. Um, yeah, I, I I thoroughly enjoyed this. So I'll, for now, I'll give it the high three. Sweet for you, James. Yeah, no, um, I say I say the I basically agree with you guys are saying. I uh, I, I just the thing that really puts it over the edge for me is that like. It is a the thing that might put it into like the four range is the fact that it's such a great Sydney film and there's so yeah. many like great shots of Sydney and like so some even the like the the bike race around um where the, between yeah, the two of them is cool. is, mm-hmm. yeah no it's like in the just in the northern suburb in, in the northern suburbs of Sydney and it's quite funny because it's quite a wealthy area where they're doing that. It's like a really uh, doesn't quite look like it in that sort of section, but there's some really like 
big mansions and that kind of area. But it's just like it, the it's a way of seeing like the streets of Sydney that you just don't really see in any movies even now. So it has like a, a, a really um, uh, it's quite close to my heart in that sense. But um, yeah, no, I totally agree with basically everything you guys just said. And it's I think it's one of the great tragedies that we didn't get to see more from Sandy Harbour over the years. Absolutely. Because there's a core of something there. And the, the fact that he wasn't um, able to make more films is like a, a huge loss, I think. Because I think there was like a real um, uh, style in that sort of debut feature that would have been cool to, yeah, to and, tease and, and, out. And like it would have been nice to see him actually hone it and do some more yeah, things. Yeah, because like, there's like start to actually, here. yeah, like, like you yeah. know, really go somewhere with it. Because you do see like the bare bones of like something that would get stronger. And I mean, George Miller obviously would take that and launch his own career off of it <laughs> yeah. um, and, yeah. do, and do something uniquely his own. It would just would have been nice to also see Sandy get the chance to do that too, For to sure. bounce off of this and, and, and do some more. Um, and either way, it was, it was nice going back to talk. Cause I mean, we've uh, weirdly enough, actually on the show, we have talked more about Australian cult, exploitation stuff than i realized we've talked about just yeah, we've doing australia we've done long weekend we've done razorback um we had done um mad dog morgan and it kind of reminded me for anyone who's interested and you know wants to go down more i don't know if you've heard of this film james but when i was at uh the toronto film fest this year i saw one that's coming out this year an australian sort of uh cool. trying to bring back this old school kind of like counterculture exploitation vibe to it and it's an australian film called um the true history of the kelly gang Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Justin Kurzel's movie. Yeah. Yes, and I would, I would look out for it for anyone who gets because it's probably coming out in Australia sooner than it's coming out here in North America. You guys might have even already have it coming out sooner. Yeah, it's it's, it's basically it's on our local um, streaming service. I haven't actually had a chance oh, to wow. watch it. Okay, so you guys it, can it, already it, watch it. So anyone yeah. who's listening from Australia, you guys can already watch yeah. this film, and I'd check it out because it it reminded me a Is lot. Is it like a motorcycle gang thing again? Or? No, no. It's it's actually closer to Mad Dog Morgan. Oh, okay. Where it's a totally. bit of kind of like that outlaw um, sort of like the, on the run on or? on the run okay. specifically, um, but it, it also mixes it with a bit of an Australian version of like the assassination of Jesse James by the coward mm. Robert Ford because um, because it, it tackles kind of like the tragedy, the national tragedy and myth of um, Ned Kelly, who is a bit of sort of like a, uh, a bit of like a, an immortalized kind of like mythical bandit over there. I mean, James might yep. even be able to speak a little bit more to that, but I was just taken with like the, the raw style of it, like the way that oh, okay. they handle the brutal shootouts and the violence and some of the, the, the lighting in it. And, um, so it, cause it, it operates a little bit as a bit of like an old school period poverty drama for a little bit. Right. And it deals a little bit with like the history of, you know, their relationship with sort of like the British colonizers and, and, um, uh, same with Mad Dog Morgan, where, it, where he hung out with kind of like that uh, native Australian right. character for a little bit and was being hunted by those British forces and stuff like that. So it has a little bit of that vibe, but it infuses it with like this really gross um, violence and really like um, uh, sort of like expressionistic style to it. And uh, I wasn't. I didn't absolutely love it when I saw it at TIFF, but when you're at TIFF, you're watching like five movies a day. Yeah, yeah. So you you know you're kind of like uh, I I am interested in really checking it out again, and I feel like anyone Sounds who's good. maybe familiar with the Australian history probably will get more out of it than I did because like it feels like really in communication with like the history there. And James might be cool. able to uh, when you get to check it out. I would I'd like to hear your take on it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, it's it's on my list. I've, I've been meaning to watch it over the past couple of weeks. Sweet. Beautiful. Okay, well, that will wrap that. it up for our uh, Australian, our, our back 
in the Australian outback uh, cult movie realm that was oh yeah uh, Road Games from 1981 and Stone from 1974. Uh, James, if you've got anything you want to plug, this would be the place to do it. If you don't got any new writing or anything, you could just do the Twitter or any other podcast <laughs> yeah. guests you got coming up. <laughs> I've got, um, what have, what have I got going on? I don't have anything writing to show you. I'm, my Twitter is uh, at J.R. Hennessy. Um, I just appeared on, uh, the podcast, all the president's minutes, which is, uh, by the creators of one heat minute. Oh, um, where it, they're doing president, all the president's men. That's right. Yeah. I didn't so even know that. I, what a great film. Yeah. So I, uh, I did minute number two and we had a great long chat about, uh, Richard Nixon and, uh, journalism and the, the whole bit. So, uh, that's all the president's minute. Apart from that, I don't really have anything else to plug. So thanks for having me well, on. Well, thanks for letting me know about yeah, that. Cause I didn't it. even know. Cause, uh, if, if you don't know, Jamie, that's a podcast where they basically go minute by minute through entire films. Holy shit. Uh, and, uh, they started off by doing heat from uh, oh, Michael Mann's heat. And uh, yeah. on the last episode of it, they actually got Michael Mann to come on the show and they no were, cause way. he was so impressed by like what they were doing, breaking down every single fucking minute of that film. And they've since launched it into other shows. And I, I knew that they were doing, how long do they talk for each minute? Like uh, an hour. Yeah, it seems like they go for an hour. <laughs> so it was a really. It took them several years to finish Hate. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it, is, it is. It is interesting uh, premise, and I knew that they were doing a couple other films, but I didn't know they were doing all the presents. Man, I might have to check that out because that is like, uh, like really. Wow, peak, that's fascinating. Both a peak journalism and also like paranoid thriller movie combined. Um, totally. So that's 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 a fun one to check out. I'll have to take a look at that. Um, but for our I'll listeners, take a look at that podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. We are going to be back uh, in one week's time with our bonus episode and branching directly off of Road Games and oh, Stone. Yeah. We had to do this Speaking episode. Of, yeah, because I, I I mean, I this double feature I literally had scheduled for us to do before we even started the show. It was one of my first double features that I came up with to do because I just yep. I love both of these films a lot and I think they work really well together so it, it made perfect placement to put it right after this episode so we are going to do George Miller's Mad Max 1979 yeah um uh which you know uh, perfect cued us up doing Road Games and Stone here because Absolutely. Uh, Brian May did the score who did Road Games and uh many of the bikers who appeared in Stone also later appeared in uh Mad Max and it sets us up for the visual vocabulary and kind of like the uh the biker background that kind of launched Mad Max uh even though George Miller took it in more of a dystopia direction yeah um uh, but we're going to be pairing it with one of just the weirdest exploitation movies <laughs> I ever caught Death Race so 2000 good. Death which, Race 2000. Yes, oh, yeah. which is just... That's good. Uh, That's for, very good. Yeah, it's <laughs> unbelievable. It's, it's another road movie, but it's an American political satire version, and it is basically an ultra-violent grindhouse version of, of, of Speed Racer or Mario Kart or Wacky, Wacky Races. Wacky Races, yeah. So if you've ever wanted to watch, like, a fun cartoon... Uh, sort of like pro wrestling adjacent <laughs> sporting event, but it yeah, involves like running over pedestrians for points in really gruesome fashion. That is the film, the only film I could think of that that happens in. It sort of even predates the running game as kind yeah. of like America's interest in gruesome entertainment in that way. 
So we are going to be talking about Mad Max and Death Race 2000 for uh, the uh, Patreon listeners next week. Again, patreon.com slash podcast. If you want to listen to that episode, that'll be exclusive over there in one week. And in two weeks' time, we are going to be back with a special guest pivoting a little bit more into the horror realm, but we are going to be talking about sort of small-town secrets turning into explosive horror. So we're going to be talking about The Fog, John Carpenter's The Fog, uh, also starring Jamie Lee Curtis. She made it the year before she made Road Games, so there's also a connection there. And then we're going to be talking as well, uh, Gary Sherman's Dead and Buried. Sweet. That's been on my list forever. It's been on my list for a while, too. So I've seen The Fog. I really like The Fog. And this guest really wanted to pair it with Dead and Buried. And I was like, that gets another thing off my watch list. So totally stoked. Sounds good to me. Um, So that's what you can expect in two weeks time for the free listeners on any podcast listener of choice there. Sweet. But that being said, I think that will wrap it up for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening, guys. And keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. Cheers.